We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we work and learn, and pay respect to the First Nations peoples and their elders past, present, and future. We're recording on Gadigal land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Thanks for joining us for episode two of Rewind's trip back to 1990 and the birth of Archie Roach's seminal debut album, Charcoal Lane. I'm your host, Steve Bell. This is a multi-part affair, so check out episode one first if you haven't already, just to get the full story. Sitting here in a lonely old guest house I'm sure that my life is all through Scratching fleas and watching the grey mouse I'm making love to the memory of you For without you I'm weak and uncertain And I feel so naked and cold Like a window without any curtain My innermost feelings unfold The drink I just had It wasn't as bad as the first but drinking won't do When it's only for you I thirst I thirst For your kiss In episode one we traced Archie's path from being born into a large happy family to suddenly being taken away without warning by government agencies and placed into the foster system. Stripped of his identity in some strange misguided attempt at assimilation indefensible policies which had been around since before Archie's plight, stretching back to around 1910, which carried on right through to the early 70s, sometimes even after the forced removal policies had been revoked. That's why it's stolen generations plural. This madness was going on for decades. Archie had been lucky enough, in the circumstances, to spend his youth with a loving foster family, but in his teens, when he discovered the first kernels of the truth about his real story, Discovering that he had blood relatives out there that he'd never met, he hit the road on the long and convoluted quest for identity, a mission to find his family and reconnect with country. It nearly proved his undoing, but with the support of his beloved wife Ruby Hunter, Archie prevailed and he was soon pouring his heart and soul into music, and in a beautiful piece of serendipity, was plucked from semi-obscurity by Paul Kelly and his trusted lieutenant Steve Connolly, and placed on the path to greatness which started, of course, with his debut album, Charcoal Lane. Before we get into the recording of Archie's seminal debut, I'd like to introduce another voice, that of Yorta Yorta MC Briggs. He's an award-winning rapper, independent label owner, Hollywood comedy writer, as we'll find out, an award-winning children's author as well. And through both his music and his action, he's a fierce activist and advocate for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and people. Despite coming from a completely different musical world, 
Riggs has become a firm friend and frequent collaborator with Archie Roach, but he remembers, as a youngster growing up around Shepparton, knowing about Archie as an almost mythological figure in his community long before he'd ever heard Charcoal Lane or any of Archie's music for that matter. Yeah, like, you know, I grew up in the 90s, you know, so like I wasn't really checking for Charcoal Lane, you know, as a, as a you know, 10-year-old kid in in Shepparton you know what I mean like I grew up listening to to Ice Cube and Tupac and Snoop Dogs you know <laughs> like it didn't really it didn't really register um but we always knew about Archie Roach um as a as a figure you know what I mean so it wasn't like like that music like those tunes you know, um, for a kid at that age, it just wasn't for me, you know? And like, it's not until you're older and you get to like, look back and really appreciate, you know what I mean? The importance of, of a charcoal lane and, and what it means to, um, to an industry and to a community, you know what I mean? Um, and, and the country, as as well so like you know when i say like um you know i didn't really get to appreciate it you know when i was a kid it's just because of my age you know what i mean that era it's totally. like you know i didn't get to appreciate you know the, the nuance of a lot of great things until i was older because i was too busy watching predator you know what i mean <laughs> so you know, it's great that, um, you know, we can take this time now to really reflect and, and you know, I think it's testament to Archie's work that a kid that grew up listening to hardcore um, rap music and, you know, metal and punk rock, you know, can see and feel the importance of um, his artistry and his story and his legacy now, you know? What was resonating about it? Was it just his, like the bravery of his sort of conviction or, or just the fact that he told these stories before everyone else? Um, I, I think like, like what, what really, you know, rang true was like, was like, unless you've been to Melbourne and been around, you know, because, like, I totally missed that era, you know what I mean, completely. <laughs> like, you know, I wasn't in, I, I wasn't, you know, in Melbourne by myself until I was a teenager, you know what I mean, able to, um, you know, find my way around the city. And by that time, it was, like, you know, the early to mid-2000s. And, you know, anyone will tell you that it's, that it had changed a lot, you know, from the eighties and, and nineties, you know what I mean? So, but there's something about it. Cause like, even when you go down around Gertrude street and all that now, it's completely different from when I was a kid, you know what I mean? So I can only imagine how different it is for these old fellas, you know what I mean? Who used to hang around the gym there and, and, you know, around Smith street and all that. So, but, if you know the history 
And like, I feel like I definitely got a little bit of a taste of that when I was kicking around and, you know, in and out of cash converters and running into different characters and whatnot. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like, like that is the, the, like, it's, it's a feeling, you know what I mean? It's a, you know, like just, just to take, a, like, just to look at one aspect of that story of Charcoal Lane being amongst a community in a city, you know what I mean? Where, where like nobody was really from at that point, um, but they were all there, you know what I mean? So like everyone was kind of a little bit displaced, but they found this community um, amongst themselves. And like, so like these are the things that I first, like, it, like when I'm painting a picture and uh, in my head and listening to this stuff and like thinking about, you know, these fellas playing and singing and doing their thing at these bars and pubs and, you know, like that Melbourne stuff. And then you add another layer on top of that of you know Archie's story and the and then the real history you know what I mean that history that is the real um the real like nucleus of everything that he that he um embodies you know what I mean that he that he's talking to you about and you know I guess like the cornerstone of that is like um took the children away yeah mm. and you think about the opening line of, you know, the story is right. The story is true. You know what I mean? It's like, and that's what embodies everything that charcoal rain and Archie um, is about is their honesty, you know, because that's what travels. That's what stays, you know, that's the, that's the, the, the eternity of it. Is like this is the truth, and like this is not gonna, like, this is not gonna shift and change. The, the only thing that's gonna happen is the listener, the audience is gonna become more aware about Australia's history and the history of where they are. And Archie's songs, for that reason, are only gonna become more potent. We ended the first episode of this rewind with the much-missed Ruby Hunter putting a foot down to Archie when he was reluctant to commit to making an album with Paul Kelly, telling him, it's not all about you, Archie Roach. How many blackfellas do you think get to record an album? And to Briggs, even though technology these days has changed the landscape to a degree, the sentiment of Ruby's conviction remains imperative, and that together Archie and Ruby helped open a lot of doors for today's generation of incredible Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists. You know, the difference is as well, man, it's like when Archie did it, it was, it was a lot harder to do. You know what I mean? Like, to be, to be honest, like after we finished this conversation, I could turn on my computer and leave it on and turn, leave this microphone on and make an album. You know what I mean? If I, <laughs> but like back then, you know, you're recording to tape, you know what I mean? You need a team of people who believe in you to get around you to make this record, yeah? And so it's it's a lot more of a process um, back then till now, right? It's like now, because of the, um, you know, the nature of, cons- you know, music consumption and technology, it's like a lot of people can make a lot of records, yeah? 
So back then, if you were to make a record, make an album, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, it, you know, some some people really had to believe in that. And then you have to, in turn, believe in yourself, yeah? So, like, you know, Ruby said to Arch, it's like, this isn't just for you, Archie Roach. It's not all about you. And he took that on board, you know what I mean? And he understood that, you know, it was important to open that door. I guess Ruby's seen the future, you know what I mean? She had the vision because she knew what this story meant. So sometimes when you're inside of the story, you don't, like you're not able to appreciate what it is. So, you know, it takes a good visionary around you to be able to, you know, that you trust that um, can tell you, no, this is, this is important. Um, this is bigger than you and you need to get in there and do it. And that's what he had with, you know, Ruby, that's what he had with Paul Kelly, you know, like the great facilitator. It's, um, you know, your artistry is all there. The stories are all there. Sometimes you just need a bit of a nudge to, to be reminded, you know what I mean, that it's worth talking about. Okay, at this point we'll rejoin Archie, explaining to us the road to recording Charcoal Lane following his incredible game-changing set supporting the messengers at Melbourne Concert Hall. Before long, Paul Kelly and Steve Connolly, who'd become instant fans and together were going to co-produce what would become Charcoal Lane, were visiting Archie and Ruby at their Melbourne home, feeling out each other as people and forging a musical bond via the age-old tradition of singing songs around the kitchen table. And Archie takes us back to the start of that all coming together, a phone call from Paul. Yeah, they might have rang up work first and they got me phone number. Uh, oh, hang on. We, no, this time. Yeah, yeah. I was working outside the group home. But see, me and Ruby, yeah, they partner Ruby Hunter, we, 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 well, she mainly was running this family group home with a lot of the state, uh, with state ward children, ironically, that we looked after. And I worked outside the group home. And uh, so, yeah, but they got in touch with us. They must have rang up work and then got the phone number for the for the uh, the group home, and uh, and they rang up there and asked. I said, "Listen, you know, uh, whereabouts is it that you live?" And I'm Paul Paul Kelly, you know. And uh, me and Steve want to come around. I said, oh, "Who's Steve?" And he says, oh, "He's my guitarist, but but uh, we want to come around and have a have a yarn to you about about some of your songs." And, uh, so yeah, so they, they eventually came around to the family group home and uh, and talked about you know said oh we're wondering if you, you'd be interested in doing an album with my record company and I said oh, I'd know how to think about it <laughs> and uh, he said have you got enough songs I said oh, I might have enough songs together I don't know I'll have to check it out a couple of songs. Then we sat there and just sang, I sang maybe one or two of my own songs, and then we just sung a few country songs, you know, like Will Haggard or uh, George Jones. And, uh, 
I remember yes, us, yeah, all of us singing, we sing the table singing uh, Window Up Above, George Jones song. I thought, wow, these, these fellas like my, my sort of music too. And I said, well, you know, here's a phone number. Uh, we've got to get going, but, you know, if you change your mind or see what you think about doing an album, just give us a call. <clears throat> and so, so, yeah, that's when I first met Paul and, and Steve, Steve Conley, of course, was there with him. And uh, he introduced him to Steve, so he's our guitarist, guitarist and messengers, but, you know, we're just interested to, if you, you know, we're interested in, in and seeing if you want to do an album, get to get, get a collection of songs together and, and do an album with us. So that's when I first met them. Yeah. Was that important doing that singing together to build up that trust or rapport? I think so. I think that's whether, whether they, they had that in mind or not, it was just something that or it was just organic. I think it was a, more organic than anything that we just picked up guitars and, and just, uh, had a bit of a jam, you know, of these uh, country songs that we knew, and they, they knew a lot of country songs. And, uh, and that's one of my favourite George Jones songs, Window Up Above. And uh, we did a couple more. Uh, but I think it just got, it, it just, when you see, when you're sitting around with a couple of fellows playing guitar and singing a song together, that you just all know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's what, we, what I've done for years. I've done that. For, I've done that for years around with me, me brothers, uh, me, me uncles, my cousins. It's just something that we do. We've done, and uh, so it was just natural you know, to do that, and it, and it did. It, it built up a bit of a, a rapport with with Paul and Steve. Yeah. Paul agrees that the period he and Steve spent just hanging out and playing songs with Archie and Ruby in their kitchen proved pivotal in the charcoal line narrative. Uh, I can't remember which came first, approaching you know a record company first, or just going to his place and um, and hearing his songs. But whatever uh, whatever the order was, I, it, it became apparent very quickly that he had you know like a full body of work. He'd been he'd been playing around for quite a while and writing songs for for quite a while. He's playing at, at folk clubs in Melbourne. There's a place called One C One. I hadn't seen him there, but but. We started, Steve and I started visiting uh, Archie and Ruby out at their place in um, Reservoir, um, the northern suburbs of, of Melbourne, and just sort of sitting around the table, around the kitchen table, playing songs. Um, we sort of, and we sort of just did that sort of once a week, once every couple of weeks for a few months, just, um, just to sort of... To, get comfortable with each other and uh we would play um you know uh, country we play covers so we play country songs hank williams and george jones and um the guy who wrote there stands the glass actually did a great version of that um ted hawkins ted hawkins thank you um uh jimmy rogers uh and and then actually would you know play his songs interspersed with that and uh, with the encouragement of Ruby, so Ruby would sort of prompt him, um, and uh, the songs just kept coming. Um, from, from one of the, you know, we've been doing this for a while, and then um, Ruby said, "Yeah, well, Archie, you know, play, play him that 
playing charcoal lane. Let's play that song, charcoal lane. <laughs> so uh, she played it to us, and you know, I just, yeah, uh, just a jaws dropped to the floor. This sort of beautiful song. Side by side, we walk along to the end of Gertrude Street. And we top all and muster for a quart of wine. Big old thin, right or wrong, in the cold and in the heat. We cross over Smith Street to the end of the line. Then we laugh and sing. That was the thing that struck me so much about Archie then, that he was, uh, I guess, you know, fully formed as a songwriter. He didn't need uh, editing or didn't need help, you know, finishing off the songs or um, so, uh, and he had lots of great songs. So that's when we took it to Mushroom Mushroom Records uh, and... Uh, and got Archie to meet the folks down there, and, um, and and took it from there. Archie ended up penning nine of the ten songs on Charcoal Lane, with the final track, "The Beautiful Down City Streets," being one of Ruby Hunter's first ever compositions. In fact, Archie recalls the first time he found her working on that song's lyrics back when he thought that songwriting was solely his domain in their relationship. No, Archie. He wasn't saying anything about her writing songs. And, uh, they'd come back from work one, one day and found her in the bedroom. And, uh, you know, she, she must have been writing the song or getting a few, uh, just sort of uh, polishing it up a bit or something. And uh, as soon as I walked in the bedroom, she, she, she just hit everything under the, under the pillow. And I thought, what's going on? What's that? And said, oh, nothing. She finally showed it to me. She said, Mom, what is it? Give me a look. I said, oh, well, if you insist. And she pulled it out. And I was, I'm reading it and looking at it. And I said, this looks like a song. She said, yeah, it is. And uh, I said, I want you, can you sing it to us? And she did. And I was blown away. I just thought, wow, that's one of my favourite songs to this day. And, and uh, I just thought, you know, like I asked her, I said, why didn't you tell me he was writing songs? And she, she goes, well, you know, he's going to tell Archie Roach that they're writing songs. And I um, said, don't be like that. And, uh, so that, that was the first of many of the songs that she, many of the, the hits, I think. Yeah, she wrote yeah. We now know that. We know now that she was an amazing songwriter and singer, but that must have been amazing to find that first one and it be Down City Streets, one of the greatest songs. Yeah, I just thought, wow. It, it was, you know. I said, you know, if she can, you know. I think that's what she meant just quietly too. When she says, it's not all about you, Archie Rose. You know, and, you know, I can write a song too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was. I just thought, Wow, there you go. You know, if 
if I did have any, you know, if you do have any influence in life, uh, you know, regarding certain people, you that you know, for someone to write a song like that, everybody wrote a song like Down City Streets. Uh, if I influence that in any way, uh, I can take that with me to, you know, uh, to when it's time for me to go and just say, well, I'm quite happy and proud to uh, have been a part in that way, part of a small part, whatever, of that song coming into being, yeah. Awesome. And it's so special that that got to be on Charcoal Lane too, I think. It is. It is. It, it was a, actually, it was a, when Paul and them came around and, and, and when I said, yeah, well, uh, I've thought about it and I think I'll do, do that album. And I only had nine songs. And Paul, Paul said, well, we really need 10, Archie. And uh, Ruby nudged me under the table and said, what about my song? And I said, okay, then sing it to Paul and Steve. And she did, and that became the 10th song. That became the, 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 the album. So we've got an album, Archie. And uh, so I, yeah, I looked at Ruby and said, would you mind if we sang it on, on uh, this uh, album, Ruby? She said, no, I'd be, I'd be proud. So she was quite generous to allow us to do that as well. So everyone's on board to make this first Archie Roach album. They've assembled an album's worth of songs. It's time to hit the studio. The room in question was the home studio of Men at Work's Greg Ham, an intimate setup in Carlton, perfect for this small operation. But for Archie, who'd never recorded in a professional environment before, it was all completely foreign, including the process itself. Strange. You know, you'd, you'd be there all day from, I don't know, maybe at 9 o'clock till 11 o'clock at night and probably put down one vocal, you know, because they'd be laying all sorts of other instruments and that. And, I, and this was back before CDs and, and that it was, this was still real to real. And, uh, you know, uh, singles and, you know, cassettes and, 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 and t- so it was all, all tape, a real to real recording. And, uh, but no, it was a great experience. He, you know, we'd, we'd, I'd go up and do a, do a vocal on one song. And I said, oh, if that, we can work with that. And I said, what do you mean work with it? Well, you've got to come in and, and do it properly later on. And I said, oh, okay. He said, but we might get some people in to do some singing, do some, do some backing vocals. And I said, oh, that'd be good. And he come up to us and say, Oh, what about, what if you got uh, Tim Finn to come in and sing on Took the Children Away? And I go, Tim Finn? Tim Finn of Split Ends? And they go, yeah. I go, what? <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. I said, wow. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, get Tim Finn in then. <laughs> and... Uh, and then the Bull Sisters, you know, Linda and Vicar, doing a lot of their own stuff now, but mm. were originally backup singers for Joe Camilleri and the Black Sorrows. And I've always loved those girls singing. When I was with Joe, they said, the Bull Sisters, I said, who are they? Oh, they, they sing with Joe Camilleri, the backup singers. I said, what? I know who they are too. 
and so it was all it was all strange but beautiful great experience and uh and uh it took it took longer than i thought to, 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 to do to do an album you know because yeah there's all this layering you know you come in and start with it back in the day they started with drums first and you know, got got the rhythm got the drums and bass got that happening first and then and then maybe guitars and that the vocal was probably the, the last thing that you put on, on on the song so it was a wonderful experience it's interesting to note that you don't actually see paul kelly's name come up in production credits that often outside his own work and he admits to not really being too keen on the role as a general rule i don't do a lot of it i've done I, uh, I've done it a bit here and there, but um, I don't know if enjoy is quite the right, right word. It's you know it's a big responsibility and it's uh, a fair bit of pressure and um, producing someone. I mean, there's so many choices. You could you could go one way or this way or another way, and uh, and you're never quite sure whether you've gone the right way. So. Um, I mean, I still listen to um, They Took the Children Away, that song, and think, oh, we put too much reverb on it. You know, so <laughs> it's, um, uh, yeah, so I don't do a lot of it, um, and I probably I probably stress about it a bit when I do, but, um, you know, I guess it's like all things, if you put the work into it, um, you can feel satisfied at the end or some some amount of, satisfaction i mean i was really you know and with producing arts it was that was it was um a real great you know something that steve and i were proud of real sense of achievement that we had you know we knew we were working with a great songwriter so our attitude really producing archie was really just stay out of the way we knew the songs were good beautiful singer um so it, uh, we decided our um, aesthetic or ethos for making the record was to keep it very minimal we didn't want to put a whole lot of instruments on it or we record it with with a, with a whole band so we we did it with a you know pretty small pretty much the basis of the record was um, Steve um, Archie and me and um, Steve took, you know, I took care of some of the um, rhythm guitars and Steve playing electric guitars. The only thing I saw that we we thought we would would be a really good thing to do is to invite various guests onto it. Um, one for their, you know, for their ability and what they would bring to the song, but also for um, their profile. So you know, <laughs> I rang up. Uh, to, Tim Finn, who lived in Melbourne at that time, said, "Will you come and sing on this this song?" Um, in J- Jane Jane's Black, play keyboards. You know, played with Mondo Rock, and, uh, Joe Camilleri. We got Vic Linda in to come and sing. Um, Andrew Duffield from the Models. So we there was a little, you know, a little bit of I guess, I guess a little bit um, uh, a bit of conscious effort of let's get some people on here that that, uh, uh, that that might be more widely known that's going to help draw attention to this record. Um, but they all brought their their own um, 
great, great skill to it and, and sound. My sister Mary Jo played piano on a song as well. So it was really, yeah, just having those guests to, to, to add the add a little bit of colour. George Petromus on the uh, piano accordion too. Um, Archie wanted the sort of a Cajun feel for um, um, sister, sister brother, yeah. <laughs> Archie was very excited that you got Tim Finn in. Just, Tim Finn? Yeah, he was so yeah. excited to meet him. He was, <laughs> yeah, I remember. He yeah. up when he remembered it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and Tim Finn was it, you know, Tim Finn was excited too, you know. So you, meet, you meet Archie and, you know, you, you know that you're in this uh, very strong presence. And um, Tim had heard the song, and he knew it was a killer. So, you know, it was it went both ways. Everyone involved in the record was excited to be working with Archie. Did, did you and Steve um, divvy up roles, so to speak, or were you doing things together or in the studio? Um, the the you know the main roles. Steve, you know, Steve Steve was the main role. You know, Steve um, had. He's had production skills that I didn't have, and um, I was really the side man. He says, we we co-produced it, but I would say that you know Steve was um, did the lion's share share of it. Um, so he, you know, we sort of discussed with Archie. It was I know it was a new way of working for Archie because you know, we decided, right, you know, we're just going to get you to sing, Archie. Don't, don't have to worry about playing guitar and, um, uh, you know, keeping it all in time and worrying about that. We're just going to make, you know, make the track and you can sing to it. You know, but, you know, that was back in, came out in 90. Came out in 90, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so, yeah, we were still a, we're still a bit under the influence of 80s production where you do a click track and lay the track down and sing over the top. Sadly, Steve Connolly is no longer with us either. Another great talent who left us too young when he passed away in 1994 at the age of just 36. A cornerstone of Paul's 80s band, The Coloured Girls slash The Messengers, his loss was huge for Australian music. Paul remembers his friend as being the perfect counterpart in the studio. Oh, Steve, yeah, he, he was... Uh, he was a big influence on me in lots of ways. Um, he he really helped me understand uh, the importance of editing, and keeping songs uh, tight, 
I mean, he had a very, you know, he loved all kinds of music, but he had a strong pop sensibility as well. He turned me on to ABBA. You know, I, I had never thought anything of ABBA. I just totally missed him. And, but uh, he he sort of played me ABBA and, show, and sort of showed me how beautifully put together the songs were. I mean, that's just one thing. But he was always, with, with me and the band, he was always, um, I guess, the master of concision, you know. We might be sort of hanging hanging on a, on a chord for a, a few bars before the next verse. And you say, you don't need that. Just go to the next verse or, you know, let's tighten it up here or let's cut that there. Um, so uh, he had he had that way of thinking um, as, you know, so he was um, producing with, with my, the records that I made as well, um, co-producing in a sense, arranging. Um, and the other great uh, legacy of, from Steve in the music that he's left us is the way he played the guitar. Um, he never thought of, um, you know, the instrumental parts of songs as being there for guitar solos or, you know, solos. Didn't really even like that word. It was That was just sort of... Uh, a place in the song where you, the vocals stop for a little bit and you'd have something else. So he often played, um, you know, what people call the guitar solos. I really just, he, would, he wouldn't play a whole lot of notes. He'd often restate the melody of the song or just, you know, twist it a little, a little bit, but he's always referencing the melody of the song. So he was someone who, as a guitar player, for him, the song was the most important part. Not, not the guitar playing. Gerard Shalaki, the then premier booking agent who oversaw the entire period where Steve was working alongside Paul and the Messengers, also remembers the guitarist as someone who really knew his way around a song. Oh my God, did he? Did he? He's got a wonderful history. I still think he's one of the country's preeminent guitar players. He had his own style. Um, he he had vast musical knowledge. He knew what he was talking about big time. Um, his playing is all over this record. The guitar solo in Took the Children Away is Steve at his finest. picking style that just rings like a bell it is extraordinary and yeah he's yeah he's he's greatly greatly missed vicar and linda ball who as we learned in episode one were asked to contribute backing vocals to three songs on charcoal lane sister brother beautiful child and no 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 remember being pretty nervous mainly because it was the first time they'd worked alongside paul kelly here's linda I don't remember working with him before this. I think it was really early on in our career. We're still sort of touring with the Black Sorrows and we'd met Paul in Brisbane backstage at, at, uh, what's it called? Um, Expo 88. Expo 88. And I was in my bedroom at the time in St Kilda and we're just in between tours and come off the road and I remember I was flat on my, you know, I was so tired. And then the phone rang and it was, you know, it was Paul Kelly and I was like, oh, what do you want? And 
you know, it was a bit sort of dishevelled and a bit shocked. And he just sort of said, look, I'm, you know, I um, I want you girls to be involved with Archie's Records. Steve Connolly and I are producing his album and we'd like you to sing a couple of tracks on it. Would you mind coming in? And really that was the first time we'd worked with him, isn't it, Vic? Yep. As far as I know, it was so long ago. Can we talking about 30, <laughs> how long ago? 30, 30 years? We were pretty nervous. We were pretty intimidated, you know, just having Paul in the room and, and Steve, you know, Steve, yeah, and just. Archie was there too with Ruby and and it was at Greg Ham studio in Carlton. So he was kind of following around as well. <laughs> oh, oh, bloody hell, you know, the first session we do for Paul, there's all these really famous people in there and then there's Archie and Ruby who were really like, they, don't, they could see what, you know, what was going on. Ruby, I think, knew more about us than Archie did, but... Um, yeah, it was pretty nerve-wracking because <laughs> we sort of learnt the songs on the spot. We didn't hear them before we went in the studio. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We learnt on the hop. And I think that was kind of maybe in our favour, you know, that we were a little bit, we were new, we were young, we were green, inexperienced, we hadn't done, you know, we'd done a few sessions with the Sorrows and things like that. But, you know, going and singing for other people, it was like, it was, yeah, we were a bit nervous and also, you know, knew what we were, understood what we were, what we were singing about and how important the songs were. Probably yeah. not, we, we knew then, but probably not a lot more now. But back then we, we didn't, we realised what we're, you know, we weren't just singing ooh and ah, we, there were, the lyrics had a lot more meaning than just. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Vicar and Linda remember being more than happy to take orders in the studio from Charcoal Lane's two co-producers. Here's Vicar. Paul always tells us what to do. <laughs> <laughs> and we had Steve there too with the guitar, kind of helping us with harmonies or voicings of the harmonies uh, if we got stuck. So it, it, was, it was pretty easy. They basically just said, do your natural game. They, they didn't interfere too much. It's only if they wanted to hear something that we weren't doing that they stepped in. But they were pretty cool, like really laid back. Uh, not, but we just, they just left it. We just sort of did one track and then we double tracked it maybe, Cut, added a few more harmonies on it, especially No, 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 maybe, that song. Yeah. I think that that was the good thing about it. You know, I don't think it was overly, you know, we didn't sing too much. That's the great thing about Paul. He's got good taste. You know, it's like, you know, less is more. Yeah, especially with a voice like Archie's. Mm. It's yeah. incredible. He doesn't, he doesn't mean any. He doesn't mean much. <laughs> From Archie's point of view, he was just trying to sing his songs as best he could and basically go with the flow. I, I had no idea, really. I, I was just trying to do the best vocal that I could for each song. And, and sometimes, you know, you... That's another thing too, you know, you do a vocal and think that was pretty good. You know, and then Paul said, that was a bit pitchy. And I go, oh, sorry. He said, we will do that again. So I had to come to understand what pitchy was, you know. You know, you sing a bit flat or you sing a bit, you know, you sing a bit, you know, the opposite of flat, I don't know, what was that? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, but, 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 um, 
Now, this would probably get the, the best vocal that I could. And uh, it was only upon listening back to the, the, the rough of each song, you know, that I, I just thought, wow. It, it didn't matter, you know, if I had any ideas or not. I just thought, wow, that's, you know, just to hear that, to hear your song uh, played and uh, with professional, professional musicians, you know, uh, assessing musicians, but, but, but all these all, all these musicians played in bands and that and, and, and were, 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 um, were working musicians and, and to hear about what they what they what they gave to his song was just beautiful I thought so I, I was just happy with the way they, his song turned out yeah looking back on the session Paul has great memories of working on charcoal Lane and the vibe around the studio as well as being proud of the finished product very proud of it. I mean, it was it was a very happy couple of weeks. We we recorded at Greg Ham's studio in Melbourne. It was sort of like a pretty homely setup. Um, it was pretty relaxed. Like like I said, we had the guests come in here and there, and um, you know, once once I actually got the hang of the way we were we were working, um, you know, I, you know, it was. Uh, I think he was uh, happy, and um, you know we could each at the end of each day we knew we'd come a little, little bit further to to making this this thing, uh, and I guess we all felt excited by it. I I I, I, could, I had a sense that it would be um, a record that people would respond to strongly. And Archie, he remembers hearing Chuck Lane back in full for the first time and being blown away by what he and his new team had achieved. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Sitting around and listen to it. Uh, and just sitting and listening to you know, and each song and the album right through, and I thought, I know, it was a bit emotional at first, and I thought, wow. You know, I said, I don't know what to, what to, what to say or what to feel. I just... Uh, if this if this doesn't go anywhere, and I wasn't expecting it to go anywhere either, I said this was probably the, the one of one of the greatest things that that, that I've ever done, uh, and to listen to 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 my songs in this way, you know, uh, with a full band and backing vocals, and it's just. Uh, Oh no! It was it was really really uh, emotional at first to to hear that, and then uh, hearing it on radio for the first time, I go, stop it! <laughs> <laughs> I said, you just I don't know, you just try to pinch yourself and think, what's going on? Yeah. And this was only the beginning. We'll leave episode two there with the album in the can. Next episode, we'll look into Paul taking Archie to his new label home at Mushroom Records swapping hats a couple of times in the process. But first, we'll finish with the beautiful Charcoal Lane track, Down City Streets, the one Ruby surprised Archie with, and the one he says she was generous to share with him and us. Down City Streets, I would roll I had no bed I had no home 
bushes early morning Use newspapers to keep me warm Then I'd have to score a drink Start me up, help me to think Down city streets I would roll Use my fingers as it goes In those days when I was young Drinking and fighting was no fun It was daily living for me I had no choice, it was meant to be Down city streets I would go children of my own Now I have something I call my own These are my children And this is my home I look around And understand How street kids feel When they put down Down city streets I would roll I had no bed I had no home If there was nothing That I owe Use my fingers As it cold Thanks for checking out episode two of the Charcoal Lane Rewind. Three more to go. Thanks again to our network partners, Yamaha Headphones. I'll catch you really soon. 
Rewind with Steve Bell is a Euphony podcast. Produced by Craig Trewick and Andrew Mars. Recorded by Zig Parker. Theme music by Dulla Bar. For more Euphony podcasts, visit our website, Spotify, Apple, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts.